You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. So it's here. It's Thanksgiving week. Um, I'm so happy that I am not going to be the host of the house uh, for Thanksgiving this year. It was a great thing uh, that happened when me and Kyra were like basically 32 through 36, and that was a big honor to have everybody over, but I'm over it. Uh, that was enough for me, four years, and I'm, I'm through with that, and so I can just feel how anxious I would have been at this time last year if we are hosting the thing, but it's not at my house, and uh, I'm really excited because uh, the ages of all the cousins and the nephews and stuff is getting a little bit older, uh, which basically means I'm pretty much set as a 16-year-old. I feel like for the rest of my life, I'll be 16 in my mind, and so as they get older, I feel like I'm still the same age. And, um, and so the, the, the party routine has shifted away from kind of like, you know, the grandma stuff and the sweaters, and it's gotten into flag football and video games and the stuff that we really should be doing at Thanksgiving. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but, uh, you know, um, as we kind of turn the corner into the holidays, as the, as the dark kind of gets earlier in the daylight savings, you know, and we start thinking about Christmas and, and, uh, and Thanksgiving, there's a lot of feelings that, that kind of come up, isn't there, kind of... Um, in our heart and minds and, and those that we love, those we care about, and our, and our neighbors. Um, Thanksgiving is uh, a time of great memories and great celebrations, but also a time of some sadness, too. Um, uh, for, for most of us, um, well, for some of us, um, Thanksgiving represents a season of great, great relief. Um, but for others, others of us, uh, Thanksgiving can represent, during certain years, um, some dread as well. Uh, and for most of us, um, probably some combination of the two, Thanksgiving is a time when we sink back into our traditions, we remember where we're coming from, we remember our roots, we remember of God's faithfulness and all that we can be thankful for from day to day and year to year. Um, it's a time that we might be inviting some new guests, maybe some new fiancés or wives or husbands, we're going to see some new babies, we're going to invite some guests, maybe that the Spirit um, has opened up that door to invite new people to our table as guests. Um, and we're going to be strengthened and be reminded that we're not meant to be alone, and we're going to be building bonds over the table of fellowship with family. But at the same time, there are some prickly annoyances. Uh, likely, you and me will be triggered. Uh, let's prepare ourselves for that as we get to the table. Uh, our expectations are high, and usually expectations can lead to disappointment, as my counselor tells me. Uh, and so um, the Thanksgiving table can be a place uh, of, of some annoyances and ultimately some wounds as well. Um, and just some plain old-fashioned dysfunctional cyclical behaviors, <laughs> to be honest, that can be, that can be very, very difficult. And, and ultimately, I think what's really at stake uh, for us, both in this place of relief and sometimes of dread, um, is the very real factor that some of us, maybe many of us, or maybe all of us to some degree, will come to Thanksgiving uh, feeling at least alone, um, that we don't really fit in, that we don't actually have a home, that we're not really belonging anywhere. And to that, uh, I thought we would just engage this question that I think is somewhere in all of our hearts and minds, uh, not, not the least of these at Thanksgiving season, is, um, is how will we find family? Um, how will we find a place to know and be known? I believe that's kind of the ache of, of all of our hearts at different ages and circumstances is is, is where and how will we find this place that we can be known and to know? Um, will we find it um, in our blood relatives? Will we find it in our biological families? The, 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 the uh, fundamental you know, human thing to, to be um, somebody's son or daughter, to have a father that had a father that had a father, and to come around a table around hereditary you know, family trees, will I find family in my biological family? Will I find that place of, of being known and knowing others with my blood family? Will I find 
family um, in the culture that I'm around? Will I find family um, at the gym over a common goal, over a common routine? Will I find relationship and family that will last, a place to know and be known um, at, at a place that we uh, work together uh, with, with our jobs, a place where we have a, a common uh, socioeconomic status or a common uh, educational background? Will we find family um, in, in our... Um, in our, in our value systems, in our, in our culture, the, the art that we enjoy, the books that we're reading, you know, uh, the sports and the teams that we follow, like where will we find family? Will we find it in our experiences? Will we find it in our wounds? The places that I've been hurt and the places that you've been hurt can be strong connection points. Will we find family um, in our prior experiences, whether they be high or low? Where will we find family? And as we ask that question, Jesus has a pretty... A brief and direct answer to that question in the passage that Audrey just read, and I'll read it again. Luke chapter 8, verses 19 through 21 says this, now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Now, these are Jesus' blood family. I mean, this is Mary. This is the one who God chose to be a virgin and give birth to Jesus. It's not that she hasn't found favor in the eyes of God, and it's not that she doesn't have faith in Jesus' brother. James is the one who wrote, you know, the epistle uh, right there at the end of your Bible. And so we know that the Spirit of God is with these people, but Jesus wants to be fundamentally clear about what he thinks of when he thinks of the word family. He says in verse 20, uh, excuse me, somebody says to him in verse 20, someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside waiting to see you. And Jesus responds to him pretty controversially then and now with this answer, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice? Such an important question and such an important answer. Might as well read it again. Verse 21, Jesus says, what is family and where will we find it? He replies, my mother and my brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. And so Jesus is saying that although we might find connection, we might find reprieve and relief, we might find camaraderie around many different um, many different. Uh, connectors within, within our day-to-day life, that ultimately our, our family will be found in faith. Our family will be found by those who follow Jesus. In other words, whenever two or more are gathered in his name, the people of God, in the spirit of God, um, underneath the word of God, following Jesus, that they will, in that place, find what it is, I think, that all humans are looking for, which is, which is family. And so, um, we've been doing this series, 10 Meals of Jesus, and he's having lots of different meals and conversations with a whole colorful cast of characters from friends to neighbors to enemies to tax collectors and prostitutes and Pharisees. And, um, and so these last three tables that we'll look at today, in, uh, starting in Luke chapter um, 22 is the next passage, uh, all these three final meals that Jesus has um, are with his disciples, those people he's talking about. A disciple is somebody who hears and practices the words of Jesus together. And he's having these last three meals with people like that, with his family. And so the meals that we'll be looking at today uh, in Luke 22, for example, will be the Last Supper in Luke 24. It will be the road to Emmaus. And finally, uh, the sharing of fish with the disciples. All of these meals um, have in common that they are all meals that he has with the family that he's talking about in Luke chapter 8. And there's a very quirky, curious thing that happens at all these meals, and that is at every single meal, Jesus takes bread, thanks 
God for the bread, breaks the bread, and gives it. You're going to see those four different verbs happen many times, even with the the feeding of the 5,000 is a priestly kind of a duty that he's, he's taking that bread and he's breaking it. And something quirky happens at every single instance is that every time that Jesus breaks bread with his family, that the family's eyes are opened. Jesus' final three meals here on this earth are with people that he says hear and practice his words that are following him. And so the final three tables are for his family, the ones that he calls family, those that are not from blood or from culture or from past experience or wounds, but found in faith. And those meals are dedicated to the breaking of bread. And every time he breaks bread, it says that the disciples that are with him, their eyes are open. So uh, let's take a quick silent survey, uh, emphasis on silent. I don't want anybody's feelings hurt, raising hands and get people in trouble and throwing people on a bus. How many people in this room um, feel that they're observant enough to identify a problem that needs fixed in their family? Like, could put words to it. We had a silent survey, and somebody just even raised their hand. It was that loud within them. They just like, I had to testify right now. How many guys could, could see a problem that needs to be fixed, right? Second question. How many here in this room have eyes to see that they're the problem? I should have warned you. I should have, I should have warned you. I should have warned you. The fundamental problem of the book of Luke that Jesus is testifying about all those people, all those people, Pharisees and tax collectors, right, and prostitutes and sinners, the fundamental problem that's been brought up in this book is that they're spiritually blind, that they can't see. And so here's how, how that plays out. Have you guys ever noticed how the people that treat us the worst, we treat the best? And that the people we love the most, we oftentimes treat the worst. And so what this looks like in our lives, it's not just that we have stubborn problems, like we're stubborn in sin. No, the problem is, is that we're blind to the sin that we live in. And it's easier to see the sin of the person in front of us than the, person, the sin of the person in the mirror. And so what that looks like is, you've got a kid, and he knows better than dad. I mean, he's 12, but he knows better than dad, right? Why are our families broken? Why is there agitation at the family? Why is there tension? It's not just because of Enneagram scores. It's because there's blindness. And so the kid has a dad who works, you know, 50 hours a week and gets, you know, pushed on and loves the kid and wants to pour his life into the kid and wants nothing better. I mean, he's, he's not always the best dad or the perfect dad or knows what to do. But the dad is working 40, 50 hours a week to go put food on the table for the kid and wants to be there for the kid. But the kid wants to listen to Kanye instead. Because he can't see the dad. And so the problem of family is that oftentimes the love that uh, we, we should be giving to our family, the, the love that belongs to our family, gets given to our idols instead. The people that we should love the most, we treat the worst. But the people that treat us the worst, the one that we want their approval, the one that we like, the one that, we, that doesn't live near us, that doesn't give to us, that doesn't care about us, that's where our heart goes. You see how the blindness works. The dad is meanwhile working 40 hours a week. He's going through it. It's tough. The boss is yelling at him, right? But the respect that he could or should be showing his kid to raise up the kid that he's trying to lead since his heart is given to the kid and he wants to love the kid is given to the boss instead. Because oftentimes the people that treat us the worst 
we actually respect the most. And so in that way, the respect we deserve our families is given to our bullies. And this is how sin will hit a family. Families are broken not just because they have stubborn problems, they have blindness problems, and they don't see the people that are at their table. They're looking at them, but they don't see them. And so then we give the love that belonged to our family to our idols and the respect that belongs to our family to our bullies. And we come home and our tables are broken. And Jesus comes to these tables with his family and says, we are not finding family in our Enneagram scores, in our socioeconomic backgrounds, in our culture, in our idols, in all of these things. We're finding family through faith. And so this is God's plan for you and me when we are at the table of family day by day that he would break bread and that eyes would be open. This is, a, I think, the, the sermon in a sentence today as we make our way through three tables of the family of God with Jesus is that Acts 2 says we should be devoted, not on accident, but devoted to the breaking of bread, not because we're hungry, but because our eyes are blind. And that when the bread is broken, the eyes are open. And the reason why we long for family and can't find it is not because we're not trying, it's because we don't see the people in front of us. And so uh, join me here in our first table in Luke chapter 22, verses 7 through 20. The table of communion, verse 7, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they said. He replied, As you enter a city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room? Notice the detail. Notice the meticulous attentiveness of Jesus' plan to guide his disciples, his family, to the final supper that he'll have with them, this side of the cross. They send him to a city where he knows a man is going to be there carrying a jar of water to a house that he enters. Jesus knows this in one verse. In verse 10, he knows four intimate details about what's going to happen. Verse 11, and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where's the guest room? Where I may eat the Passover uh, with my disciples. He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there, prepared, 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 delicately, intimately, meticulously, thoughtfully, attentively prepared. For this Passover meal, verse 13, they left and found everything that Jesus said was going to be there, just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. Verse 14, and when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles were coming at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. I want to recommend uh, a great book for marriage, a great book for family, a great book for human beings and relationships called Keep Your Love On by Danny Silk. And uh, the basic premise of the book, I'll just tell you, you don't even have to read it, I'll send you home equipped for Thanksgiving, is just this question, yes, but what are you going to do about it? <laughs> Amen? Anybody here uh, know um, the wise words of, um, of what it means to uh, not be reactive, but to be proactive 
And Danny Silk's premise question is, you know, what are you going to do about the, 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 the lot that's in front of you? But uh, Danny Silk identifies that in our family relationships or just relationships in general, we typically tend to play one of three roles. Um, and he says that the three relational roles that we tend to play in our dysfunction of relationship is either the victim, the hero, or the villain. He says that, um, that if you walk through, I do this sometimes if you're at a restaurant, don't read the menu, just get up and walk around, look at the dishes. That's what you need to do. Another tip. There you go. There, you're learning all sorts of things, I feel like. No, these are just uh, things I care about, I guess, too much. And so I'll get up and walk around, and, and if you walked around, you know, you'd hear and see lots of different family dynamics. You'd see lots of different foods and drinks, and you'd be able to get a visual of what you're ordering in the first place. But if you were to eavesdrop and listen in, Danny Silk says that at the table, you're going to hear, you know, three different conversations, you know. And uh, the first conversation is the conversation of the victim. In other words, the problem of the dysfunction within relationships in the world is with those people. Yeah? So that's the idea, is that the victim uh, voice and the victim dynamic is those people um, are the problem, and those people need to get fixed. And if those people did things the way that I did them, everything, you know, would, would be better. Uh, and, and so if you keep walking in the restaurant, you would, you would come to another table, and this is what he would call the idea table. The idea table is where you're talking about uh, the ideas and the philosophies and the, sometimes the politics of what's right and wrong with society, and if everybody that had those ideas would have your ideas, then we'd all be on the same page and we'd all be right, right? So the voice of the hero is, if they would just be more intellectual like us, if they would just be more creative like us, if they would just be left like us, if they'd be right like us, if they would just be like us, then they'd all figure it out. The voice of the hero is maybe one of the voices that you'll hear at a table. And finally, uh, the villain table. It's not those people, those ideas, but it's those rules. At some point, the black sheep of every single family uh, kind of uh, gets fed up with the rules, feels that the rules in general are dysfunctional, and kind of uh, rebels. And that's kind of um, the three different ways that our families get broken. And so um, what does it say about the final meal, the final supper that Jesus spends with his family that at the, at the center of this city uh, that he guides them to in this last little interaction with them is this table that Jesus wants to eat. Jesus wants to eat at tables with sinners like you and me. What does it say that at the center is a table, a well-prepared table, as we read earlier? And what does it say that at the center of this well-prepared table is two illustrious images that Jesus talks about and says that these images are the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, of everything that he prepared to do, the bread and the cup? Well, what else does it say? except if the center of, the, of, of, of God's family is a table and the center of the table is a bread and the cup, is that at the table of God with Jesus in the family of God, there are no victims, there are no heroes, there are no villains, there are only sinners being saved to be sons and daughters. And so the reason why our families are broken is not because we have money problems, it's not because we have personality problems, it's because we have blindness problems. We don't see the people in front of us. And the reason why we don't see the people in front of us is because we don't see Jesus. And the reason why we don't see Jesus is because we don't see ourselves. And we had imagined that we would come to the cup and to the bread, imagining that Jesus came to save victims, that Jesus came to save heroes, or Jesus came to save villains, but he came to save none of those. He came to save sinners like you and me. And so the very first thing that happens at this table is Jesus introduces um, what it means to, to see ourselves. I, uh, 
I remember um, my first job after being a teacher was a youth pastor. Um, I remember during those days that the Lord um, really put a deep kind of conviction in my heart for revival in the youth. That was a, a thing that we prayed for, a thing that we organized worship for. It was things that we made kind of all the events for. And, and I had this dream and this passion and this uh, holy discontent to see students awakened for um, the great things of God and to be moved at those things. And so I remember um, in all the busyness of that, of church life, you know, uh, youth group is kind of its own church. It has its own little, like, events, its own little, like, parties and Christmas parties and all things. And, you know, for the most part, it could be its own little silo. I got invited to uh, the men's retreat. Now, if you guys are like me, but I am not uh, the hugest fan of overnight men's retreats. I don't know what it is. It's probably just a bad thing that a pastor should care about men's retreats, but I just, uh, you know, didn't, didn't have it high on my radar. And a guy I remember kind of sponsored me to go, and it was hard to turn down the sponsor. You know, maybe that's a little note. It's like when you invite somebody in a sponsor them, it's hard to turn it down. And so, you know, I, you know, I, I had you know, such a, you know, a, a pretense probably and a self-righteousness about things like, we're out here trying to start revival. We need to do prayer. How come we're out here talking about our problems and crying and all this stuff? Yeah, here at men's retreat. And I remember, you know, it was about a halfway through that, you know, I had finally woken up to the agenda of not just the men's event, but why God had me there in that place was to hear some of the stories of the guys that I did life with, some of the stories of the guys that were 10 and 20 years older than me, some of the stories of the guys that I thought were boring or I thought were um, not passionately pursuing revival or I thought that I had graduated beyond. It was simple guys um, leading their family well, going through the scriptures, having hard times in their marriages, struggling with pornography, and weeping over the brokenness of what it means to walk uh, a life out down here following Jesus from time to time. And um, I think it was about halfway through that I realized that the guys that were up there with the microphone crying and sobbing over the sweet salvation of Jesus in their life is that they weren't just telling their story, they are telling my story. And um, the scary thing about it is, is that the only difference between me and them is that they knew the story, but I didn't. And that Jesus was in fact, trying to teach me about revival because how many of you guys know that revival does not live separate of repentance? And I can't see my neighbor until I see Jesus and I can't see Jesus until I see myself. And so there's no heroes at the table of Jesus. There's only sinners saved. And so the second table I want to look at today is Luke chapter 24, verse 13 through 35. It says, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. This is after the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 14 says, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. I mean, how could you not recognize the king of kings that is even in your presence, walking alongside you in the road. And with the Bible in front of them, no less, talking about Jesus, not recognizing the Jesus right in front of them. Is this a paradox of irony, right? Verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk? They stood still. Their faces were downcast. In front of the resurrected Jesus, their faces are downcast. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things, he says. You know about Jesus of Nazareth. Have you heard of him before? They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But 
We had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. Have you ever just stopped in the middle of a passage of Scripture the disciples and just go, how dumb would you have to be? One of my favorite moments in the Scriptures is when Jesus has to tell these guys, listen, that's enough sword talk. Like, we've talked about swords. Like, we, we're done with this. Can we stop talking? He just, he just had to turn around and be like, enough sword talk. Okay, that's enough. Like, these guys, he repeatedly tells them, the Son of Man did not come to be served to serve. He's going to give his life for ransom for many. He's going to die and be buried. And the third day he rose again. And literally on the third day, his body's missing. And they're like, this is the worst. His body's missing. He's been dead for three days. Where did he go? Like they still like, cannot get it through their thick skulls, right? And they're right in front of Jesus. He says in verse 25, how foolish you are. How slow you are to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Verse 27, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, those stories are not about disciples thousands of years ago. Those stories about us. We are often blind to Jesus even in his presence. With the scriptures open and the community around us, we still can't recognize his face even as he's resurrected. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven. And those with them assembled together, saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus had, was recognized when he broke the bread. So there's this ambush. I don't know if you've figured this out yet, that Jesus is right next to you even when you don't think that he is. Oftentimes in your most depressed, downcast, anxious, angry backward moments, he's closer than you would ever think. And so there's this moment that apparently all the disciples went through, a crisis of faith that Peter went to, through when he told Jesus that he wasn't going to die, and, and Jesus had to tell this guy, tell, tell Peter, his disciple, that Satan was in him when he was saying that, and to get behind me, that we can't seem to get it through our head that before there's life, there has to be a death. And so we're in the middle of this anxious, angry, depressed, downcast season. In the meantime, we're blind to the Jesus. We signed up to follow a crucified king who told us we're going to attempt it and test it in every corner. And we go home on Monday and Tuesdays and Wednesdays downcast and depressed and we wonder where he is. And he's saying, I'm right in front of you. Right? And so let's take a look at this. If there's any resurrection 101, this is what it means that Easter happened, that the tomb is empty. Romans 8, 28, verse, uh, Romans 8, verse 28 through 30 says this. This is what's true about you and me. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Every, anyone know here, somebody, or maybe yourself, that sometimes gets confused about verse 28 and thinks that it says that God calls bad things good, right? 
that you are talking to somebody and, you know, probably a seven on the Enneagram, and uh, it's all good, man. I mean, it's all good. It's a beautiful mess, and mostly not the mess, mostly just the big, beautiful mess, and it's all good, and it's going to be good, and it's all good. And you just want to say to them, it's not good right now. It can be good later. It might have been good before, but it ain't good right now, right? And Romans 8, 28 doesn't say, I've come to make all things good, right? That all things are not always good all the time, and that you signed up to follow a crucified Savior that had to die to bring resurrection life. And that some of the times, the circumstances that we're in are not all good. There's a second friend, or maybe you're this friend, who believes that Jesus is here to make all things good right now. And if it's not good, it means that Jesus is not working, right? And I'm going to make it good, and if it's not good, I'm going to make it good right now. It doesn't say that Jesus says that all things are good, and he doesn't say that he's going to make all things good right away. It says in verse 28, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Reading on, this is very important to us as disciples who are looking to recognize Jesus. What is he up to in the world would be important. Verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And so those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. In other words, Jesus came to bring the greatest good, which is to make you and me like Jesus. Have you ever seen a healthy family before? A healthy functioning team? A healthy functioning workplace? Have you ever seen something healthy before? You know what's in common of every healthy community that you've ever seen? Somebody at the middle of that who's healthy. There is no healthy, functioning, long-term community, family, or church that doesn't have somebody that at least has some of the qualities, if not the very character of Jesus with inside of it, right? And so the greatest gift, his greatest good for you and for me, is not to save Stan to give him great circumstances, but to save Stan to make him like Jesus. And if we don't get that straight, we will be standing in front of the King of Glory and not even know he's there. When will we recognize on the road to Emmaus between the tables that death has to come before life? We signed to the follow a crucified king that told us we're going to have all types of persecution, all types of temptation, all type of trial, and if they hated him, they will hate us too, right? And at what point will we wake up in front of the scripture and goes, huh, I wonder if he's talking about me. I wonder if he's talking about my Tuesday. Maybe this is, this is what he's talked about over and over again, right? All right, final passage I want to look at is found in uh, Luke um, chapter uh, 24, verses 36 uh, through 49. This is the table of the fish uh, and Jesus and his disciples. Uh, 24. All right. So it says, right after the uh, episode that I just shared earlier, while they were still talking about Jesus... Jesus himself told, or stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of royal fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. 
Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. I believe that this last table um, speaks to us about our blindness, that much like the other tables, there's a blindness in coming to the table of communion, that as I come to the table of communion, there's a blindness that, that I'm the hero of the story, that I'm the, that I'm the victim of the story, that the other person is the villain of the story, or maybe I'm the villain of the story and I can't come to his table, there isn't enough grace for me, there isn't enough invitation. And that the second table, the road of Emmaus, is the discovery of the Jesus right in front of me. My circumstances cannot predicate my understanding of who Jesus is, that he died, he was buried for three days, and he rose again to testify to the fact that nothing can separate me from the love of God. And all of my circumstances are working together, not making, but working together for the best good that I could ever have to make me like Jesus. And I'm not finished yet in that process. But finally, and I think the clue here is the fish, do you have anything here to eat? And the final meal that Jesus eats with his disciples is fish. Reminds me of the very first encounter that he has with his disciples in which he told them they were going to be fishers of men. And so I believe that this final passage, as it opens up to the rest of these verses, is about opening our eyes not only to ourselves, not only to Jesus, but have you been in a moment before when you start to see Jesus and you start to see yourself for the first time, that you come alive to see others, to come alive to see your neighbor. Why is it that we're so verbally antagonistic and aggressive to people, saying things and thinking about things about people when we're in our cars than any other place. Have you ever noticed this before? Why is it that I'm so bold, like I could not even squeak up like a church mouse to somebody that I have conflict with, but I'm ready to just be like a sailor for somebody that's in a car, other than the fact that I don't know them. The car is a vehicle of anonymity, and so they're not a person. And so anonymity breeds contempt. It breeds a level of strangerness and a false eneminess that my eyes are covered for my neighbors. And the reason I don't love my neighbors is not because I don't try, it's because ultimately I don't see them as my neighbor. They are strangers to me without a name, or they're only neighbors to me without a story. But every, every name has a story, and every story has a savior named Jesus, right? And so I believe this fish thing is about seeing others. This is why he says, he opens up the scripture, and all of a sudden they get it. This isn't just for me, it's for the nations, the Messiah will suffer, just like he said. He'll rise from the dead on the third day, just like he said, for the repentance and the forgiveness, not just of my sins, but for the nations, that Jesus would get his inheritance of what he deserves that he paid for, that his name would be preached to my neighbor and yours, to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem, Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. You are witnesses of these things, and I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, the Spirit, not just to have a good time at a conference, but to be sent to the nations, that he would get his inheritance, that he would get what he paid for, that he would get the neighbors and the nations. And so I can remember uh, Campus Crusade for Christ going on a gap year mission trip uh, in the middle of 2004. We raised the support for it, went out to Ocean City, New Jersey at six o'clock. We were supposed to do date night with Jesus and they canceled it. So we went to this uh, little picnic table and they started feeding us all this food. And it was the weirdest thing. Like I, I kind of knew there was like almost like a... Um, 
escape room kind of a thing. Like everybody had a part and everybody had these puzzles and there was these papers and there was this puzzle and I didn't know what was going on. It was just this puzzle and they were feeding us these like chicken strips or whatever. And these guys, I just all I remember is that all the staff there, there's like a hundred kids there and there was only a few of them at this dinner and the staff all had these like Rick Warren like tropical shirts. You know what I mean? Like I think they're back in back now, right now, but it was so weird back then in 2004. Like why is everybody eating chicken strips and, and having these tropical ch- shirts? And it was about, you know, 30 minutes after I finished my dinner that, like, I, I realized it was almost like the Matrix, like, those guys were not allowed to let us out. Like, we were trying to get out of the tropical shirts, and, like, they were not allowing us to get out, and they were distracting us and talking to us. And so, you know, the rebel that I am, I was just like, well, if you're not going to let me get out, well, I'm about to get out then, so watch out, foo. So, you know, I waited till they turned, and I, like, ran out, and the only place that we knew to go, there was, like, two houses on the street, and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll just go to the second house. And as soon as I opened the door... Um, we were going to have like a little debrief time after it to discuss kind of what we learned. But as soon as I opened the door, I knew exactly what the point was. Uh, inside this little warehouse, there's like these like poles like that were in the warehouse at the bottom where we would do worship. And there were people that were like tied up to these poles. And basically we worked there for about 20 or 30 minutes to figure out how to get the victims out of that place or how to get the people outside, you know, unwrapped from the poles. And, um, and uh, it was, I thought it was pretty fitting and, and, and uh, good that they they made the password basically be in the name of Jesus. And that's kind of how we could, we could see people freed. And um, my, my head was hung low because we had like a little bit of a debrief and I already knew what he was trying to say. And the spirit was like talking to me and we were all like, oh my gosh, the chicken strips and the, you know, um, you know and, the, and the tropical shirts and all that kind of stuff. And this was so crazy. And, and what's the point and all that thing? And, you know, I, I, I just, I knew, you know, what they were getting after there. I just raised my hand and felt the spirit lead me to just say, you're telling us that we're not going. You're telling us that, um, that in, in the tropical, you know, tropical uh, uh, Rick Warren shirts and, and the chicken strips and all the, and the Thanksgiving meals and all the distractions that we have um, in our life, that our eyes are still not open to our neighbor, that we still only see um, cars driving down the street. We still only see that, you know, weird guy that, you know, waters his lawn the wrong way. We still only see distractions. We only see, uh, you know, people that are in our way. We see fans. We see enemies. We see strangers, but we do not see neighbors. And I believe that this is exactly what he's doing at the very end of his life. The last thing that he wants to do is share a meal with his disciples, that he would break bread and eyes would be open, not just to ourselves, not just to Jesus, but to our neighbors as well. And so I believe that that ultimately, that that aching question that we're all looking for, that sometimes we do find little snippets of it at CrossFit, and we find it on our teams, and we find it in our common interests, we find it in armies and navies, we find it um, at lots of different places. Uh, but ultimately, we, we will only find the kind, of Jesus, the kind of family that Jesus is inviting us to is through faith, through not only listening but hearing, through not only looking but seeing and practicing the words of Jesus um, day by day. And so I just want to share a quick testimony with you um, that maybe, you know, <coughs> might encourage you um, or not. But um, so me, uh, actually, and Matt, we had this conversation a couple, couple weeks ago, um, have started to just be the old Chevy Chase dad at the table and just reading a chapter a day with the kids. And so we started in Romans and we moved our way through James and now we're working on Galatians and we just read a chapter a day and they protested me pretty hard in the very beginning. Like they don't want to sit there and, you know, you know, read scripture. At least some of them didn't. But my wife was, was wise. And so it's the details that count. You know, she's like, we shouldn't just open up during dinner. Like we should have it during ice cream, which was a great idea. And so we waited till ice cream and we opened up Galatians and, and you just opened up the scriptures and, and God starts to speak. I mean, the real issue that we're fighting is not against flesh and blood. We're not really fighting against the different ages and demographics at our tables. We're fighting against the principalities. 
and there's only one name, and there's only one power that can overcome those obstacles at our table. And so we opened up Galatians, and, um, and the Spirit just spoke so clearly. At that, in that book, there's a conflict between Peter and Paul, you guys remember, because Paul was sent to the Gentiles, and Peter was sent to the Jews. And Peter, like I said, in the middle of this uh, table, is kind of like the kid at the lunch table who won't have, you know, won't eat, won't eat lunch with the dorks, you know? Like, this is the way that it hits home, I think, for many. For students, is like, we all have our tables. We like to sit with the people that we like, you know, at our tables. But Jesus invites all people to his table, and that was the nature of the conflict. And so, for the last couple of weeks, it's been really beautiful. We talk about the highs and lows. We talk about a chapter of Scripture, and then we pray. And right there, at that, at that one dinner, it was a couple nights ago, we prayed, actually, for a student, you know, in a high school that's going through a situation where, um, you know, there's conflict within the family and, um, and the, the parents seem like uh, they're not making all the best, you know, decisions for the kid. And so we just begin to pray the blood of Jesus over this thing and pray for the Spirit to release in my family. And I'm just telling you, I'm a pastor, but we don't pray enough in my family. And I'm confessing that to you. I'm in a process right now of realizing that I don't recognize that Jesus is right in front of me. And if and if God would be so kind in his grace, he would awaken us to that same reality is that Jesus and our neighbors and ourselves are right in front of us, our family members, and we oftentimes don't see them. But here's the deal is that revival lives in repentance. And that, that simple thing, I'm telling you, without the lights and the sound and the music, like revival will rest on any family that seeks him. And it's literally that simple. And so oftentimes we produce in our churches what we measure. People will come to church and they'll say, hey, is City Lights going to be a big church or a small church? That's what they want to know. But there's big churches that are unhealthy, and there's small churches that are unhealthy. Is this a spirit church or a word church? Well, there's churches that know a lot of the Bible that are not very healthy, and there's plenty of churches that are full of something, right? Well, you know, doing a lot of spiritual things that aren't, aren't healthy, at least emotionally. Are we a corporate or organic church? My point is, I kind of don't care. I want to be a healthy church. And here's what a healthy church is, that there's gospel at the tables. This is how we measure church. Are there people of God with the spirit of God in front of the word of God at your table? Because if not, we will not find family. And so this is, I think, what's been burdened on my heart is this, this idea of like it's scalable and reproducible and timeless. And in a time like this, during a persecuted time or an abundant time or a base time or a provisional time, it's like we must have gospel at our tables. And so in conclusion of just this message, I think it doesn't get any more complicated or simpler or easier than that. It's just these repeatable rhythms. And so I'll just put up these, these rhythms and I'm going to invite Tom to lead us in communion. I thought it would be appropriate to postpone communion just one week to have it today at the very end that we might see and be seen, know and be known in his presence through his bread and his cup. But... The equipping moments at the end of each of these messages have been simple threes, you know? I asked you, you know, with your stranger, the distance between a stranger and a neighbor is, an, is a name. And so the thing that I've been challenging you with is to have intentional questions, the three intentional questions for the neighbor, and they're not on the screen, I'll just remind you of them, right? Is you're always working on the superficial to get to the serious and the serious to the spiritual. You're talking about football so that you can talk about family, so you can talk about forgiveness, are we asking intentional questions of the strangers in front of us because every stranger has a name and every name has a story? And the second challenge I had was three strategies for friendship. The distance between charity and family is friendship where risk lives. Seasons, not forever codependent relationships, 
but seasons where we walk into the harvest, we open up our lives with risky people. And so what does it mean to go train for a running group? What does it mean to have a family Zoom once a month? What does it mean to have your front porch uh, with a rocking chair, you know, for an hour uh, a night from five to six for a season? It's a season. If you have coffee with somebody, don't have coffee with them for three straight years. Have coffee with them for a season and allow Jesus to work out what he is doing in the harvest. And so that was my thing is three strategies was finding a person to peace, identifying a season of friendship with that person, and praying for them with intercession and diligence. But finally, finally, if family is found not in feelings but in faith, then we would have to be devoted like an ax. And so these were just some of the devotions that I was suggesting potentially for some of our family, for our communities. Um, if you have friends over, if you're single, if, if, you have, um, if you have kids, if you have neighbors coming over, what does it look like to be a devoted family? And so the very first one was the high and low question. In our celebrations, we are seeing the different um, false narratives play out, the narrative of the hero, the narrative of the villain, and the narrative of the victim. Uh, secondly, um, I just suggest to you just to read through a chapter a day, potentially, with, um, with your kids, with your spouse, and, um, and what sticks out to you. And sometimes we just talked about, you know, the different um, memory verses that we remembered from Bible school, and sometimes we talk about lunch tables and the hospitality of God, even in high schools. Um, but whatever it is that Jesus is capable of building a family right in our midst as we hear and practice with him. And finally, if we could just advocate, if there's one thing we do as we gather together as his saints is to pray. Because the Spirit of God has never, I believe, um, circumvented or ignored a hungry family that prays. And it doesn't take all the lights and the sounds and the money to um, allow for revival to take place in the process of repentance. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.